Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is Michelle Witte. I'm here with my co-host, John Kiriakou. We are going to go against the grain with you for the next couple of hours. And uh, we have some, I would say, John, we have some fun stories (laughs) and some not very fun stories. (laughs) I would agree with that. On one hand, (laughs) we got Chris Cuomo coming back into the game to do some very embarrassing things. And we've got Trump suing CNN for defamation, which I think both fall in the kind of fun category. Uh, One of those stories more consequential than the other. Uh, Then we've got, you know, uh, a conversation about how how we should take all of this rhetoric about tactical nukes and their use and their, you know, value as uh, psychological pressure points versus their, you know, uh, real potential to be used in the real world. I'd put that in the not fun conversation category. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Uh, where would you put the uh, where would you put the latest Herschel Walker revelation? Oh, fun or not fun? <laughs> man. I mean, the thing is, I think this is for, this is from last night. Right. Or this morning. And I saw mm-hmm. the headline like Herschel Walker's son, something about an abortion. And I didn't even read because I was like, yeah, OK, there's another the story about the hypocrisy of someone who espouses a, a particular moral position. And then, whoa, what do you know, is found to be in violation of that position in his personal life. <laughs> so I like didn't pay any attention. And then I saw that the son, uh, in addition to saying, yeah, my dad's a hypocrite, is saying that his dad tried to kill the threat or not tried, but threatens to kill the family uh, yeah. and stuff like that, which is. Yeah. And and then when he was questioned about that, he said, oh, come on, that was 15 years ago. That was 15 years ago that I was threatening <laughs> to kill my family. Guys, you honestly, they couldn't find anyone better to run. You know, no one said no one had known Herschel Walker and said, hey, I feel like there might be some skeletons in this particular closet. Yeah. You know, and the fact that it is not as well. I mean, I will just also say the fact that this is the outcome is not 100 percent foreseen and written in stone uh, in this election is also just mind boggling. I keep coming back to to um, a meeting that Herschel Walker had. When with uh, with Mitch McConnell, when he first decided to run for the Senate and McConnell told people around him, wow, this guy's the real deal. It's like, what What? meeting were you in? Yeah. Did you actually meet with? I can't imagine anybody would think that Herschel Walker, of all people, was the real deal for the United States Senate. No, I mean. Now look what's coming out. He's going to kill his family. He paid for his girlfriend's abortion. It's just one thing after the other. Yeah. And we haven't even gotten to all of everything we want to talk about. We've still got we've got opening statements and the first witnesses in the trial of Oath Keepers leader Stuart Rhodes. We're going to talk about what's happening in Yemen as the country's ceasefire ends. We'll talk about the SEC cracking down on crypto schemes, including um, those perpetrated by celebrities. Uh, we got a U.S. jobs report we're going to get into. We've got the U.N., uh, stepping into the fray and saying, please, uh, please don't continue to raise interest rates. You're going to push the world into recession. So we will talk about uh, yeah. what that means. We've got prisoners requesting to be sent to Guantanamo. Dogs and cats living together. <laughs> it's, it's bedlam <laughs> on this Tuesday. Um, and, you know, before we, we before we get started, uh, we also still have the, the cleanup underway for Hurricane Ian. Um, and. 
you know, I, I have a death toll from CNN. Uh, you recall yesterday, different news agencies had very different death tolls. But CNN's as of yesterday was that at least 101 people were reported killed by Hurricane Ian in Florida. 54 of them alone were in Lee County, where uh, Fort Myers and Sanibel Island and some of the hardest hit areas are. Um, the North Carolina death toll holding steady at, at four. But crews in Florida are still going door to door looking for people. Hundreds of thousands of people still don't have power, uh, which is not surprising when you look at what the devastation was in some parts of the state. You know, you still you have just flattened homes, flattened businesses, um, island communities that are still cut off from the mainland, alligators and snakes coming out uh, in places where you don't often see them and you don't want to see them, which I can, you know, assume is only adding to the danger of these rescue and recovery operations. Um, Mm -hmm. It is a a terrible mess. And, you know, yesterday uh, questions were raised about, you know, the the timing of evacuation orders, um, you know, and whether evacuations could have been ordered earlier for some of these areas that ended up being hit really hard. Um, And now there's a lot of question as to, you know, the way the public is informed about hurricanes. And I think when you talk about hurricanes, you know, to some degree, you know, these storms are going to come and some of this destruction is inevitable, right? If you if That's you are right. going to live in these areas, you can't move your house out of the way of this wind and this water. There's only so much a building can withstand. As one of our guests on the show said, you know, build to code. And that's that's what you can do. But, right. uh, you know, the, the hurricane did not do what it was expected to do. And there are some questions about how these paths are predicted. Could it have been predicted more accurately? accurately and maybe more importantly is there a better way to communicate risk should we uh axios had a story on on some questions uh, being raised in this regard is it should we be focusing on geography or should we be focusing on the potential damage uh to any area that it does hit because there's some question as to you know if you have a model and your model is not totally accurate, uh, and in yeah. this case, the American forecast model, the global forecast system, was not as accurate as the European model. Uh, that ended up far closer than the actual outcome in the U.S., uh, the prediction until, you know, shortly before the hurricane made landfall was that it was going to hit Tampa. It was going to hit farther north. And this might have been a reason why people in Lee County were less prepared. But, you know, it, you can never predict exactly what is going to happen. And so instead, should people, you know, should we try to communicate this risk, not in terms of the likelihood that it's going to make landfall within a particular, you know, 10 or 20 mile area, but the potential consequences, if you are where it makes landfall, you know, and and you're in some kind of cone of possibility, you know what I mean, John? I sure do. And, you know, there there are so many different components to this thing. In the days before the storm, um, so many commentators, Michelle, were saying on the likes of CNN and, uh, and MSNBC and even Fox that this was Governor DeSantis's big test, right? He's been talking tough for a long time, many years. Now this was going to be his big test. So we've got the deadliest storm in the history of the state of Florida, over 100 dead. And there are legitimate questions as to when the evacuation order should have gone out. And 
should should Florida authorities have foreseen the possibility, at least, of the storm changing course? Because God knows every storm changes course. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's sort of hooked south. Maybe they should have expected it to hook south or hook north or do something mm-hmm. and expand the area of mandatory uh, evacuation. And these officials and are didn't. operating, you know, with the same human minds that everybody is making a decision whether to evacuate or not is, you know, which comes down to like, so do we need to? Yeah, sure. We should look at look at decision making. Uh, And then also look at the way uh, this sort of data is communicated to people. Yes. I think. Yes, precisely. Yeah. Uh, I like thinking about I like thinking about things in terms of risks and consequences, you know, low risk, high consequence, high risk, low consequence. Mm -hmm. It's a very it's a helpful uh, matrix, I think, for decision making. Um, Yeah. And you know what? It would be (laughs) it would be a good master's degree. To tell you the honest to God, I mean, truth. I do that a lot when I'm hiking. Like, I look at something. Like, I do. Do I want to do this? What are the consequences going to be? You know, I don't like consequences. That's what I'll say. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the low there risk, you go. low risk, high consequences. Still is going to be something I'm not that comfortable with. Uh, you're not going to find me skydiving. Uh, Chris Cuomo. <laughs> uh, Chris Cuomo's back. Yeah, John. Yeah, and yeah, uh, he's back, and it's almost impossible to find him. Yeah. You know, I guess he is already doing his job uh, in, in to some extent because I am now aware of News Nation, which is on TV somewhere. Right. I mean, I guess yep. that's where he is. Uh, yep. He says he's back and he's different. And then he called his mom. And I mean, Chris Cuomo, man, you lost your job because it appeared that you were using your high-profile media position to help your high-profile politician brother, uh, both by giving Andrew Cuomo these cotton candy interviews while he was sending old people with COVID back to nursing homes to infect everyone. That was the thing that didn't get a ton of attention. Uh, But what did was then Chris Cuomo apparently helping craft Andrew Cuomo's media strategy and maybe investigating his accusers using, again, his position in media. That got all the attention. So Chris Cuomo here poster boy for access journalism, accused of only having a job in media because of his family connections. And in his great comeback, he calls his mom. I mean, I almost feel bad for him because this is really cringeworthy. A funny thing in The Guardian today, it says in interviews leading up to this debut, Cuomo said he chose News Nation because he's excited to get in on the ground floor at a network that's just starting out. But more likely, it's because nowhere else would have him after he vandalized his journalistic reputation. Yeah. Also, getting <laughs> getting in on the ground floor is usually about your own position. He's a he's a TV anchor. He's not an intern. You know, he's not like a co- starting right. off as a correspondent. But whatever. And unless they gave him ownership in the network, uh, the the term getting in on the ground floor means nothing. I mean, honestly, it's he is kind of he's cutting an embarrassing figure. I'm going to I'm going to start to feel bad about talking about Chris Cuomo pretty soon. But he also did. You know, he launched his return to TV by saying he's humbled by what happened at CNN and he's driven to do better. Um, But uh, he hasn't dropped his lawsuits against CNN as far as I'm aware. So, no, no, he sure hasn't. Yeah, maybe not quite that humbled. Um, No. And, uh, you know, North Korea. 
North Korea test-fired an intermediate-range ballistic missile over Japan today. It caused Japan to issue some warnings to evacuate buildings and to pause public transportation in some areas until the missile had landed in the ocean. Uh, I do not think it's new that North Korea has a missile that would put the U.S. territory of Guam in its range. Um, it is, however, the first time North Korea has fi fired a missile over Japan since 2017. Uh, it, of course, follows the return of U U.S. aircraft carriers to South Korea last month, the first time mm -hmm. since 2018, uh, and follows, of course, the resumption of large-scale drills by the U.S. and South Korea. It also follows uh, Vice President Kamala Harris's trip to South Korea. Um, North Korea tested some missiles before her trip. It tested some while she was in Japan. And now it's uh, shot this this relatively big guy over Japan after her trip. And I don't think there is a, a whole lot to say about this incident, except that if the United States wanted a diplomatic breakthrough with North Korea, we could have one. For absolutely. We without could a have doubt. One. Yeah. But yeah, without a doubt. We want this adver adversarial relationship. You know, we, we benefit from it. And who cares about the danger to East Asian countries around the Korean Peninsula, to the populations of both Koreas, who cares about the destruction to the land and the sea around those countries because of the drills that, you know, that we engage in and then the, you know, the responses that North Korea engaged in. All we all of that doesn't have to be the case, uh, but this is a path that, that we are choosing. And it will be North Korea that's demonized for this test. And I have to say, it is, it, my sympathy is... Uh, generally speaking, with North Korea uh, in terms of its uh, position on the United States, because the history that country has with uh, with the U.S. and the West is just uh, abominable. Did you happen to see the, the news yesterday that the Cuban government has asked us for help um, to get their electrical grid back up and running? It was uh, the, the State Department said they were taken by surprise that the request did not include a, a dollar amount. Hmm. Um, and so they said that their Cuba team and their relief team are uh, looking at it and we're exploring ways in which we can help the Cuban people. Um, hmm. This should have been done ages ago. Yeah. Uh, we should have reopened diplomatic relations with the Cubans which Donald Trump had cut off just a couple of years after Barack Obama had finally initiated diplomatic relations after, what was it, six decades? Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, now maybe is, is a chance for the Biden administration to take a baby step, which is all it would be, in the right direction. Uh, we're not doing anything, certainly, with North Korea. Maybe yeah. we can do something with, uh, with Cuba. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it would be it would be great to see. Uh, also, uh, maybe if we are able to help Cuba get its electrical grid back up and running, we could uh, help uh, Puerto Rico do that, or maybe stop all of the policies that result in oh. Uh, oh, yes. Puerto Rico's infrastructure uh, just being eroded and eroded and eroded over time. But we'll we'll see. I'll cross my fingers. Also, Indeed. I mean, I, I know we need to get to our um, our next guest on Yemen, but. Um, did you see this story about the uh, LAPD police officer who I remember seeing the story uh, a little while back that a, a Los Angeles Police Department officer was killed in a training accident? Uh, right. It was uh, I think the deal was they were they were training for um, uh, gang fights or something. They were training for like 
uh, riot fights in an urban environment. Something like that. Right. Yeah. He uh, died of a spinal injury. He was found to have uh, broken ribs. Um, the broken ribs were attributed to a type of automatic CPR machine. Uh, his, uh, the lawyer who was representing his mother says that her son, who was 32 years old when he was killed by other officers, uh, was maybe going to blow the whistle on an assault case involving other officers. So the lawyer yeah. is saying 10 months before his death, uh, he became a whistleblower in this case and uh, that he is very suspicious of, uh, you know, the, the circumstances of this officer's death. But it reminds me very much of uh, that death in Baltimore. Remember this a couple years ago, John? Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. um, yes, indeed. Yeah. When that uh, officer was killed in a shootout in an alley, right? Right before he was supposed to testify. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. You know, the same thing happened to, to Frank Serpico, going back that far, where uh, he ended up being shot in the face by a, a drug dealer because uh, when he called for backup, literally nobody showed up to help him mm -hmm. because he was a whistleblower. Yeah. Yeah, that's what you get. I mean, who knows, right? Who knows Who knows what actually happened? I certainly am not, uh, you know, privy to any behind-the-scenes information, but, uh, you know, uh, would, I, would I put it past these organizations to do whatever they have to do to protect themselves? I would not. <laughs> yeah. I think— Yeah, I would agree. I think we can take a little break here. We are going to come back and hopefully be able to connect with our guest on Yemen in Yemen. We're going to give it our best shot. In the meantime, we're going to take a quick break here on Political Misfits. We are on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C., and we'll be right back. Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. We told you yesterday that the ceasefire between Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates on the one hand, and Yemen on the other hand, had expired. Delegations from all three countries continued negotiations over the weekend, that's the Western weekend, but nothing came of those talks. United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres urged all sides to continue talking, but there are no indications at this point that an extension of the ceasefire is at hand. The questions then are, will the war begin anew? Will the Saudis and Emiratis seek again to dislodge the Houthis? And will the Yemeni people continue to die of starvation, sickness, and war? Michelle, this is a bigger story than the Western media would have you think. Mm -hmm. You know, Yemen is a long way from home. Um, I, and I'll tell you something. On my very first trip to Yemen, I've been to Yemen five times. My very first trip, I was a junior CIA analyst. I was meeting with the U.S. ambassador to Yemen. This is before, you know, terrorism in the region was a big deal. There was no al-Qaeda, for example. And I said to the ambassador, May I ask you a silly question? I said, what, what national interests do we have here? And he thought about it for a second, and he said, none. 
We don't have any national interest here. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, that's changed over the years. It began to change um, dramatically in 1990 when Iraq invaded uh, Kuwait and Yemen happened to be on the United Nations Security Council at the time. We threatened the Yemenis uh, that they had better be with us or they were going to be uh, on our list of, uh, I don't want to say the word, but our list of not friends. Uh-huh. And uh, they elected to to side with the Iraqis on that issue, not because they were particularly enamored of Saddam Hussein, but because they didn't want to see Western um, military intervention in the region. Oh, why ever not? Yeah. <laughs> why, what a weird <laughs> position to take. And our relationship with the government of Yemen, um, which is not the same as the government that the country has now, Mm -hmm. has never really uh, recovered. Mm -hmm. And so when famine comes and war comes and, you know, a lack of water and a lack of medications, we just have ignored the place. And then when the Saudis decided that they were going to start bombing it, um, nobody really batted an eye. No. It's been a terrible thing, truly. No, and nobody batting an eye. I mean, that kind of includes uh, includes the U.S. public, right? It's hard. Famously, yes. a, a couple of years ago, there were a bunch of studies done on uh, just how much time uh, U.S. cable news uh, dedicates to covering Yemen. It was almost nothing, you know, uh, slightly less than Afghanistan, I, I would right. imagine. And I'm looking at poll, you know, like you can't even get... You can't even get a lot of polling on Yemen from recent years in terms of what how the U, U.S. public ranks it in terms of their concerns, how they feel about support. I'm looking at a poll from four years ago uh, finding that a majority of Americans oppose U.S. support for the Saudi-led war in Yemen. 58% wanted lawmakers to halt or uh, scale back supplying arms for this conflict. And so this goes back to a conversation that we were having with a guest yesterday about how much does popular opinion matter when it comes to support for war? And, you know, right. I guess I my position to start out in that conversation, I don't know that it's changed, is that it really doesn't matter, right? Because I don't think you would find very much support um among the U.S. population for a lot of the the wars that we've been engaged in for a totally while. I mean, there was agree. less support for, for Syria, you know? Um, but I guess the way you assuage people uh, is to either uh, just completely ignore it, just continue doing what the government wants to do for whatever economic or geopolitical reasons, you know, it wants to keep sending weapons into these conflict zones. Just get your media to ignore it or... If you don't think that is going to be possible, uh, whip the population up into some kind of frenzy of of support uh, using whatever means you have. But I, I just feel like it, it it doesn't really it doesn't really matter what the U.S. population wants. The government's going to do what it wants to do. And, uh, you know, sometimes it'll engage in a full p- court press to get you uh, on their side if the economic consequences are going to be direct and going to be significant. Uh, yeah. But otherwise, just ignore it. And that's what's happened in Yemen. You know, no one in the, not a lot of people in the United States, one, think about what's going on there. And two, want to uh, be, you know, send, paying our tax dollars to, to send weapons to Yemen. But it uh, doesn't really feel like we have a lot of options for pushing on a lever that would stop it. 
you know, that's the key right there. We really don't have a lot of options. And when you when you come back and look at at U.S. national interests in Yemen, it's actually kind of hard to pin down what they are besides counterterrorism. Mm-hmm. Right. There's an area in eastern Yemen called the Hadramut. I love that word, Hadramut. It, it's the name of the state. It's a desert state, but it comes from two Arabic words, Hadr and Maut, which means vegetation is dead. Yeah. And it's because it's so dry that literally nothing can live there. There's no vegetation. There aren't even insects, right? Because it's so dry and so hot. Mm-hmm. Well, um, that's where Al-Qaeda is based, Al-Qaeda, Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. Mm-hmm. That's, that's where they're based. Now, we have a national interest, certainly, in making sure that they are not able to launch anti-American, anti-Western terrorist attacks from Yemen. And we've been successful in doing that. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to whether or not the, uh, the Sunni Yemenis or the Shia Houthi Yemenis run the country, what do we care? Well, It doesn't impact on us in any way. I mean, yeah, no. the stated reason, right? Or isn't it because we say we say the Iranians are backing the Houthis and we don't right. want Iran to have any more influence in the region because Iran's influence is somehow uh, far more malign than the influence of Saudi Arabia. <laughs> which again, it's a calculation that is absolutely wild to me, especially when you see the results of this Iranian influence in places like Central Asia, where I got to see it firsthand, you know, where Saudi Arabia spends a bunch of money to put up a a mosque that preaches a very different interpretation of Islam than, uh, you know, what is prevalent and uh, uh, organic to to Central Asia. And, uh, you know, what do you know? You have a bunch of Central Asians heading to heading to Syria to fight for ISIS, to fight for al-Qaeda. And so, yeah, that's a that's the kind of influence we really want spreading around the region, not, you oh, know, yeah. whatever Listen, it is Iran I, might be peddling. You're absolutely right. I went to uh, Guatemala a few years ago, a little bit more than a few years ago now, to uh, volunteer at an orphanage for a couple of weeks. And one of the things that um, that my friends there pointed out to me was this absolutely magnificent new mosque in the center of Guatemala City. Mm -hmm. It took up an entire city block. It had a huge dome, and it was completely financed by the Saudi government. Um, They also pointed out that in this exceedingly heavily Catholic country, um, Islam was the fastest growing religion. And this is the Islam of Saudi Arabia. It's Wahhabi Islam, fundamentalist Sunni Islam. It's the Islam that we have now in American prisons. This is another thing that Americans don't know, is that it's the Saudi government that Mm -hmm. provides all of the Qurans uh, that are distributed in American prisons. Mm -hmm. Now, the Quran is the Quran. No matter who publishes it, the words are the same. What's not the same, though, is on the opposite page— Um, On each opposite page is scholarly interpretation of what the Quran means. Mm -hmm. And so you're getting only that fundamentalist Wahhabi Saudi interpretation of Islam. That's what's spreading in places like Guatemala and Kazakhstan and American prisons. Mm -hmm. Saudi Islam. Ask you when when we talk about counterterrorism, this is a genuine question. Yeah. Who does the United States accuse? What international terrorist group do we accuse Iran of supporting 
that has uh, ever done anything to the United States, right? I mean, Iran itself, right. we like to call a terrorist state. I guess I am thinking as I ask this question, uh, we say they support Hezbollah. Uh, we say they support uh, Hamas in uh, in Israel, uh, in right. Palestine. Not aware of uh, a lot of international activity by those two no. organizations that we accuse Iran of backing. I think, you know, you can say Iran, Iran uh, it, there are connections there. Uh, but then you look at the other Gulf states and you look at Saudi Arabia and connections to uh, Al-Qaeda and yeah. ISIS. Crystal are, clear. Yeah, undeniable. <laughs> and so again, the, whole, the counterterrorism thing, I mean, I guess like, occasionally they try to um, blame Hezbollah for, for like bombings in Latin America or something. Is that, am I recalling this correctly? Yeah, but that was in the 90s, the early 90s, 1994. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, your your question is a very, very good one and an important one, because the truth is that the groups that uh, that we accuse the Iranians of endorsing and supporting um, are groups that either no longer have a beef with the United States, as in the case of Hezbollah, which is a legitimate political party in in Lebanon now and is a part of the Lebanese government, Mm -hmm. uh, or Hamas. Hamas doesn't doesn't target Americans. They've never targeted Americans. These are groups that have national domestic uh, agendas, right? At at most regional, right? That is absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah. We we have no beef with Hamas. The Israelis certainly do, but that's the Israelis' fight, yeah. not ours. Yeah. Well, <laughs> sure, <laughs> to, to the extent that there's daylight, but yes. Yeah, I just feel like it's it's important to draw that out every once in a while uh, and to say, yeah, yeah, I mean, this is, it is a very, it's a good example, I think, of this, our uh, foreign policy hypocrisy, because it's it's so condensed, right? There are pr- yeah. neighbors there. One... Uh, who gets a pass on all of our ca- counterterrorism efforts, and the other who is, uh, you know, we, is the uh, subject of hyper focus on counterterrorism that doesn't really exist. You know, I want to get back to Yemen for a moment, if I can. Uh, Yemen, Yemen used to be a net food exporter, right? They exported food to all over Africa, uh, Eastern Africa, all over the Arabian Peninsula. Uh, they are blessed with what at the at at one time was thought to be an unlimited supply of clean water. Uh, they had access to both. They have access to both the Red Sea and the Indian Ocean or the Arabian Sea. Um, and now it's one of the most war torn and one of the poorest countries on earth. This actually started in the seventies. And and we can't blame everything on the Saudis and the United States. What happened in the 70s is the the Yemenis decided to grow ghat. Ghat is a shrub um, that people uh, pick the leaves off and chew. Mm -hmm. They chew the leaves. Mm -hmm. And it gives you sort of a a mild... uh, You know what? It's like drinking a... It's like beetle nut, right? Like beetle nut. It's like an espresso. yeah, like drinking a few cups of coffee is what it's like. And it's it's a very, very important part of Yemeni culture. Well, God uses vast amounts of water. Mm-hmm. And so instead of growing fruits and vegetables like they had, in the mid-1970s, they began to convert to God. When I went to Yemen for the first time in 1990, um, I drove 
all over the country with two friends of mine, a husband and wife team. And one of the things that I remember seeing and really being struck by was these Gottfields as far as the eye could see. And people had built towers out of stone, out of field stones. These towers would go up about like the equivalent of a flight and a half or two flights, right? Two stories. Mm-hmm. And the farmers were just sitting up there at the top of the tower with an old gun, an old rifle. Some of them looked like they were Ottoman. They were so old, just guarding their cot fields. So it got to the point where instead of exporting food to two dozen different countries, um, they ended up having to import food. Uh, they, Their children didn't have shoes, mm-hmm. but they had plenty of cot. Mm. And... Um, and one of the worst things is this aquifer, which stretch, which stretches from West Africa all the way to Iran, water used to gush out of the ground in Yemen. By the mid-1980s, they had to go down 20 feet to find water, and oftentimes it was brackish. Hmm. So they wrecked their own economy in the 1970s and then hated the Saudis so much that you know, if the Saudis say right, the Yemenis say left. The Saudis say up, the Yemenis say down. And then when it came to the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait, um, the Yemenis picked the wrong side in that war, at mm-hmm. least by Saudi standards. And they've just never been able to recover. Yeah. Hey, sounds like California and almond farms. That You know what? That's exactly what it's like. It just Almonds use vast amounts of water. Yeah. Just helps if you have a huge state and then a huge country around you to kind of uh, That's you know, right. uh, mitigate some of those experiences. Uh, yeah, yeah. Just for fun, I was looking at this website yesterday called California Outdoor Properties, and it's a it's a seller of raw land. I just not for any reason, just because I was interested. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and there was a a farm for sale, like fifteen hundred acres in in northernmost California near the Oregon border, mm-hmm. and it said perfect for um, for walnut orchards. And it's like, what what state do you live in? Yes, there's no water. <laughs> Hey, Who's going to grow uh, almonds yeah. with no water? I want to ask um, you a question about Yemen, John. Uh, you were asking why there hasn't been more diplomatic involvement by other countries, why uh, the Omanis in particular haven't uh, tried to host peace talks. Do you have any Do you have any answer yourself to that question? Because I'm curious, too. Oman does seem to play sort of a, a, the role of facilitator in the region pretty often. They do. The Iranians have good relations with the Iranians. The, the, yeah, the Omanis mm-hmm. have good relations with the Iranians and good relations with the Saudis in the United States. You know, the Omanis are very, very peaceful people. They're, mm-hmm. I don't know if you've ever been to Oman. I but have. They're it's just very beautiful. It's a wonderful, beautiful place, and the people are kind, and the, the, the food is great, and the, it's just wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, and they like to just get along with everybody. You know, life is easier when you just get along. Mm-hmm. Um, but they are deathly afraid of the Yemenis Mm. because the Yemenis for years uh, threatened to take over uh, Western Oman. There was a, there was a group called like the Oman Liberation Front, I think is what it was called in the, in the seventies. And there were no Omanis in it. It was all Yemenis that were, that would cross the border and shoot up villages and stuff like that. And with the help of the Saudis, the Omanis were able to push them out and finally defeat them by the early 1990s. Um, so I think that the reason the Omanis aren't involved is just because they're, they're afraid. 
they're afraid of the Yemenis and they would rather just mind their own business. Do you think we are going to see fighting resume? Uh, I hate to say it, but yeah, I do. Mm -hmm. I do. There's nothing... People underestimate the level of hatred between these two sides. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think that that the Saudis believe it is in their national interest to make Yemen an international basket case. And if that means bombing hospitals and schools and starving people to death and forcing ships carrying medicine to turn back so that everybody dies or is too weak to fight, I think that's what the Saudi goal is. Yeah, I mean, why let a ceasefire expire if, you know, if negotiations are going well, if you're not, if you don't intend to restart fighting? Yeah. Exactly. I think that's really what it is. Well, John, are you ready uh, to move on to uh, World War II reparations? Yeah, let's talk about World War II reparations. All right, let me take a quick break. We're going to come back and talk about that. We'll ask what the hell is going on in the UK and a couple more questions. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We are live in DC and we'll be right back. and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou. And as promised, we're getting into some questions about World War II reparations. We're going to talk about what's going on in the UK economy and government, talk about where the global economy is headed and how we should understand the relationship between economic powerhouses, China and India. We are joined now by John Ross. He's an author and economist, and he's a senior fellow of the Chongyang Institute at Renmin University of China. John, thanks for being here. Pleased to be here as always. I want to start with European politics. Poland yesterday officially requested talks with Germany on reparations over World War II. Poland wants $1.3 trillion in reparations. The German government's position, which uh, Foreign Minister Annalena Baerbock had to uh, probably awkwardly reaffirm uh, as she is in Poland right now, but Germany's position is that the question of reparations is long settled. They were paid and they are done. And now, you know, I think that this question in Poland has some history. It is not coming out of the blue. Debate has been ongoing for some time over whether Poland actually got anything. And it seems like the current political party in power in Poland actually raised this question seriously in 2017. And so I I really want to ask if if you think this you know, Poland bringing up reparations in a very serious way now is related to current European political turmoil, you know, with arguments inside the EU about how to respond to the war in Ukraine and how to interact with Russia. Or is it just coincidence that this is happening right now? No, it's certainly not a coincidence. It's basically, um, this is part of the United States campaign against Germany. Mm-hmm. I mean, the... Um, the question, firstly, the the, the um, world war is well over, and now all reparations were sorted out. Then, secondly, there's scarcely anybody. Well, there are a very small number of people alive in Germany who were alive at the time of the second uh, Second World War, and thirdly, the present 
West German government of which and state of which I all the German government state, which really derived out of the West German uh, state, has got nothing to do with the state of Hitler. So this is just a whole complete fake thing. Um, the reason it's doing it is because the United States is carrying out an attack on Germany by all means possible. I mean, as as has been widely reported, and I'm very, very pleased to see Jeffrey Sachs said it, it's very suspicious that the Nord Stream pipeline and Nord Stream 2 pipelines have just been blown up. Mm-hmm. Um if you work out who that is in the interests of, it's in the interests of the United States and of um, probably Poland. Mm-hmm. Um, and Poland is one of the closest allies of the United States in Europe because it wants Poland wants two things. One is Poland wants extremely hostile relations with Russia because it thinks that's a way to extract money from the United States. It thinks that if if there's big tension with Russia, uh, therefore the United States will see Poland as the front line and give money to Poland. So they. Poland deliberately attempts to create tension in Europe. And then the United States sees Poland, it does see Poland as its front line ally against both uh, Russia and against Germany. And the United States is doing everything possible uh, via the the war in Ukraine, the expansion of NATO, which has created the tension in Europe, mm-hmm. uh, forcing Germany to buy gas from the United States, which is many times more expensive than the gas that was getting to Russia. The United States is doing everything possible to weaken Germany. And uh, this Polish nonsense is um, an example of that. I mean, Germany has also been the target of, you know, months of uh, sort of criticism of its tepid response to uh, supporting Ukraine in this in this fight. I mean, how long does it, it... how long does Germany pretend this isn't happening then? You know what I mean? Like, do you expect Germany hasn't uh, behaved in any way that's hostile to the United States? I, I don't see. Uh, I mean, I'll be, I will also be honest and say I don't don't read German. So I didn't read the German headlines today, but I am not seeing English language reports uh, that German reporters are asking, uh, hey, did the United States blow up a, a pipeline that we really might have wanted to have access to it? So uh how do you explain Germany sort of uh, continuing along as though everything is is fine and normal? Oh, because it, unfortunately, it's decided to subordinate itself uh, to the United States. I mean, this is greatly against the interests of the German people. Um, but you know, the United States has done this. I mean, there was the old joke, you know, about um, NATO. Uh, the the purpose of NATO is to keep the Russians out, to keep the United States in, and to keep the Germans down. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm afraid the United States has continued to follow this policy, and I'm afraid it's not going to do against I mean, against the United States. You have to understand, none of the uh, capitalist governments, let's call, call them by their proper name, is prepared to have a serious struggle with the United States mm-hmm. because it would then find itself relying upon its population. I mean, the last person who in Europe who waged in, in Western Europe, not Eastern Europe. In Western Europe, who waged a serious struggle against the United States was Adolf Hitler. Mm. And Adolf Hitler's condition for waging the struggle with the United States was that he totally crushed the labor movement within Germany, because otherwise he thought if he had a fight with the United States, you would have um, discontent would be arised in Germany. You couldn't fight on two fronts. So I'm afraid they're not going to stand up to the United States. I think some people have the illusion that uh, because it's not economically rational for what Germany is doing, therefore it was German government to do, it will stand up for the United States. But I'm afraid politics comes before economics and it will continue to subordinate itself to the United States. I wish I could say otherwise. The only 
but the only movements which are against, really against the United States, are movements of the peoples in Europe. Mm-hmm. I want to ask also, in terms of uh, standing up to the United States to some degree or another, I wanted to get your thoughts on this foreign affairs article saying that China has lost India. Um, because, you know, since February, China and India have been spoken about in the same breath very often because they're both big countries. They're both economically significant. I mean, there's a difference between them, obviously. Uh, But they both are are significant, and they have both chosen to buck the demands of the United States that they abandon their relationship with Russia. Um, And so, you know, we we discuss them as countries in that same general category, but it's possible that we have really understated the hostility in that relationship. This is what this piece is arguing. It says, don't be fooled. The border crisis between India and China remains unresolved. India has fewer qualms than ever about working closely with the West and with its Asian rivals to China. And so I wonder if you agree and and what, you know, I wonder what you think the state of China and India's relationship is right now and how significant that relationship is going to be, especially if, you know, we see a a global recession and these are two states that have been, you know, that are that are growing economically. Well, this is the United States attempts going, everybody close to China, it wants to stir up trouble. Mm -hmm. Uh, The state of the relations is there has been a border dispute which has existed for decades. It's very intractable. I doubt that it will be sorted out. Um, But as regards the economic relationships, China's trade with India is absolutely booming um, at the present time. And the United States has a policy of creating problem and most countries in Asia don't want to get involved in it. The United States has spent the last decades trying to create tension in the South China Sea, sailing warships through there and everything. And most countries in the South China Sea are not going to be involved in tension. I, I think that the policy of the India towards China is somewhat foolish, but I understand their situation. The basic problem is they used to be China and India used to be roughly, you go back to when they became, when India became independent in 1947 and China was the revolution in 1949. So they're basically the same starting point. Mm -hmm. They were roughly countries on a comparable level. In fact, the per capita GDP of India was slightly higher than that of um, China. But now China's economy is about three times the size of India. Mm -hmm. Um, If if there was a war between China and India, given the economic power of China, China's going to win it. India's fallen behind basically because China's a socialist country and India's a capitalist country. Mm. Therefore, India is looking for some sort of military protection against China because it's weakened um, so much. And the United States is trying to stir up trouble. And But there's no fundamental um, clash. I mean, what what is the, what are the border dispute? Okay, this is this is unpleasant. There were some people were killed. Indian troops were killed in a clash there quite recently, but it's not a they're not going to go to war. Mm-hmm. Um, and the economic relationships between the two are absolutely booming. So the United States just want to create as much trouble as possible. And the, uh, fr- frankly, the foreign policy and the foreign affairs of the United States engage in wishful thinking, which is extremely mm-hmm. um, dangerous in the situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also want to talk about, you know, on the uh, topic of creating as much trouble as possible, I wanted to talk about Liz Truss and what has gone on in the UK over the past week. I mean, we, I have been sort of mentioning it on the show for the last week because it's been a 
from from a distance, sort of a comic uh, series of events. The government introduced a mini budget that included a huge tax cut for the wealthiest in the country. The pound immediately plummeted. The government bond market went nuts. Trust got grilled on local radio around the country. Uh, at least this is what is being reported over here. Uh, and, you know, in response, I mean, the government had to step in, buy a bunch of bonds. The tax cuts were rescinded, but there still seems to be some turmoil. And you have a CNBC report today warning of a possible housing market crash in the UK. And so I, I want to ask you, how how significant is what happened in the UK economically over the past week? And how is this going to affect uh, Liz Truss's government? Oh, it's extremely significant. This is a devastating um, crisis. I mean, the living standards in Britain are going to go down horribly because they're now being hit by two whammies. First was the energy price um, increase, which was terrible pressure. And secondly, because basically she's destroyed the economic credibility of the government, interest rates have shot up and that's going to hit people via mortgages because most mortgages in Britain, apart from the short term, are on flexible rate mortgages. So you're getting hit by a whammy. Mm-hmm. of firstly probably a thousand a thousand dollars a month on the energy costs now you're going to be hit by another whammy of a thousand dollars a month on the um mortgage is terrible crisis i mean i think it's destroyed the government i mean yeah it's, it's it, this is not going to be re-elected but it's this is an example of what happens if you follow the united states the reason that what is this is the gut the whole brexit thing was a lot of nonsense and economically damaging to britain and it was carried out by people who wanted to be close to the united states okay mm. what they want to do they want to, what they want to do is as as boris johnson's past past passing words when he was forced to resign being the third i can't remember how many tory prime ministers we've had oh she's the third one since brexit <laughs> isn't it the third prime minister since brexit they go they come in about every you know couple of years and then they go out right okay um he said stick close to the united states but then what she's trying to do is you might call it is americanized british society that is Mm -hmm. be close to the united states in foreign policy to get rid of welfare to deregulate the economy she even wants to do things which are a bit irrational like fracking which won't work very well in britain for geological reasons but as the united states is doing fracking therefore britain's got to do fracking but the problem is this is a massive attack on the population Mm -hmm. and so what she did was she unveiled her pro-American policies, the result of which is her economic credibility has collapsed and her popularity um, has collapsed. The last opinion poll I saw had a 33% lead of the Labour Party over the Conservative Party. I, th- I think she's kaput. She's she's en- she's finished. I mean, when? there is... Go on, go on. Well, I was just going to ask, when, like, mm. do, do you think you will see a different Tory prime minister before there is another general election? Because I can't remember when another election can be held. 2024. Yeah, yeah. Does she hang on for for two more years? Well, I guess another year and change. Uh, it may well be doubtful. We may may have another one. I mean, she's only been uh, in office a month. I know, but like um, the chaos she's unleashed is mind boggling. Yes, and the um, I mean the Tories they say there are already letters demanding her resignation being sent in because it's a formal procedure in order to get rid of a Tory leader, the, uh, you have to have a certain number of MPs who, who submit letters of no confidence. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they're claiming that there's there's no confidence, and they then she's supposed to have a year. She can't be challenged for a year, so that people are discussing changing the rules. I mean, she's going around 
desperately trying to save um, save her neck. I can't I can't tell you whether there's going to be another one or not. I mean, yeah. it's quite it's quite likely. On on the other hand, you know, the Tory party is extremely ruthless, and if she turns out to be a total embarrassment, which she is, then they're perfectly capable of getting rid of her. I mean, they, they might as well do it now while we all still remember the rules vaguely from Boris Johnson like a, a month or so ago. So, um, I want to ask also uh, what you make of these comments by the Secretary General of the UN Conference on Trade and Development saying uh, the world is being he- is heading toward a policy-induced recession um, and calling for a policy mix that deploys price controls, windfall taxes, antitrust measures, and tighter regulations on commodity speculation. Uh, don't see any calls for interest rates hikes there. Uh, I wonder if you, you know— if you think the world can avoid a, a global recession and uh, if stopping rate hikes will do it. No, the well, first, I don't think you're going to stop rate hikes. Yeah. Uh, I mean, th- this disorder, the, the present world economic disorder is not created in Ukraine, which is what the United States is trying to claim. Yeah. It's being created in the United States. I mean, it just, it's a very simple thing to show. The, 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 the Ukraine war started on the 24th of February. Right between uh, between January twenty twenty, well, let's say that's just before the pandemic hit the United States, uh, and January twenty twenty two, that is before the war. Um, U.S. interest rates have ridden by seven point four percent. They've only gone up by eight point two percent altogether. So about approximately ninety percent of the increase in inflation in the United States took place before the war started. Mm. Um, it's because the United States was not prepared that. The United States is not prepared to cut back. Uh, it's in a recession. I mean, technically, it's a recession. It two, ne- two, two quarters of negative growth. It's not prepared to cut back on its military spending. It's not prepared to ca- cut back on its catastrophically inefficient health service. I now notice that the uh, proportion of the U.S. GDP spent on health is now over 19%. It's almost one-fifth, one-fifth the U.S. economy. And in, in conditions in which ch- the United States population already lived less than anybody in Europe. And according to the latest information coming out of the United States, the life expectancy in China is now higher than that in the United States. So mm-hmm. you've got the, the world's most expensive health system in order to have the lowest life expectancy of any um, any advanced country. I feel very sorry for the American people having put up with this nonsense, right? Okay. As it's not prepared to deal with its grotesquely inefficient health service, as it's not prepared to cut back on its military spending, therefore it has to attack the population. The inflation is just the technical way that you attack the population's living standards. As Keynes pointed out, if you go out to people and say your wage is going to be cut by 5%, they tend to react rather strongly. And also, incidentally, they can fight an individual employer. Mm. Whereas if you put up inflation by 5%, you can cut their wages, so to speak, by stealth. And anyway, there's no point in them taking action against an individual employer because the employee, the individual employer doesn't control the the inflation rate. So mm. it's much harder to fight against inflation than it is direct wage cuts. So that you're just having a, you know, the real wages in the United States have been falling now for over a year and mm. they're going to continue doing so. If we do see this spread globally, what, what's the role of China going to be uh, in helping stabilize the global economy, if, if possible? Well, it, China will continue to grow 
okay. I mean, it's every economy in the world slowed down as a result of this. So China's mm-hmm. growth has already slowed down. So therefore, you have ridiculous stories, which I read, you know, because I have to follow the economic, you know, Bloomberg and the Wall Street Journal, mm-hmm. etc., saying, oh my, you know, look at this, the, the US, the Chinese economy is slowing down. Yeah, it is slowing down, but it's yeah. not slowing down nearly as much as the United States. Since since the recession started, China's economy has grown three times as fast as the United States. So China will do okay in this situation. Mm. The problem is that although China contributes about has been contributing about thirty percent of world growth, that means seventy percent of world growth is not coming out of the United States. Uh, not coming out of China, mm-hmm. given the, a recession in the United States, which has already happened, uh, and a, a recession which is in Europe, which hasn't yet happened, but it's coming, China, the most of the rest of the world, I'm afraid, is going to be in a very bad economic situation. I mean, if you look at the inflation, let's take a cre- threshold of 10%, let's say above 10 which is actually a bit high, but if you have above 10% inflation, you've got serious problems, right? Mm-hmm. Very serious problems, right? And discontent. About 90% of the countries in Eastern Europe have got over 10% inflation, just under 90% in the former Soviet Union. In the global south, basically, the, the, the about 40% of the countries have above 10% inflation. So China will be okay. That means that East Asia will be more or less okay because that's what's most tied into uh, China. But I'm afraid there's going to be a recession in most of the – or even worse, it's going to be stagflation. It's going to be both inflation and slow economic growth in the rest of the world because that's because there's a total mess in the U.S. economy and in Europe. Doesn't look good in the near future. Uh, that was John Ross, author and economist. John, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Fine. We're going to take a quick break here on Political Misfits and come back to talk about some of these uh, media stories, which are fun, but also do carry some significance. You know, if the former president is able to successfully sue a news organization for defamation, that's going to have some pretty serious consequences. We'll get into that and more uh, just after this break. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We are live in D.C. and we'll be right back. where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatments. I'm John Kiriakou, here with my co-host, Michelle Witte. The trial of Oath Keepers founder Stuart Rhodes and four other group members on charges of seditious conspiracy and myriad other felonies enters day two today. Prosecutors said yesterday that the Oath Keepers made plain their intention to disrupt the business of government and to force an indefinite delay in the official counting of the Electoral College votes. They hoped that by doing that, they could ensure that Donald Trump would remain as president. Prosecutors said that they, quote, planned their sedition in plain sight, unquote. Meanwhile, dozens of other January 6th defendants have written an open letter asking that they be transferred to Guantanamo, in protest of conditions in the D.C. jail. That won't happen, of course, but it does bring into focus the third world conditions that prisoners have to experience in the city's jail. 
Former President Donald Trump announced that he's suing CNN for defamation, and he is seeking $475 million. Trump alleges that CNN has tried to damage his future political career by using the term the big lie when mentioning Trump's assertion that the 2020 election was stolen from him. He's filed similar suits against, excuse me, against big tech companies, but they've all been thrown out. There seems to be confusion among Western governments over what they perceive to be a Russian threat to use tactical nuclear weapons on the battlefield in Ukraine. Western governments seem to agree that it's far easier to threaten to use those weapons than it is to actually use them. But the confusion is over what the response should be should Russia actually do it. Analysts are predicting everything from an all-out NATO war against Russia in Ukraine to a coup against President Vladimir Putin to the complete international isolation of Russia. We're going to talk about these issues and others with Jim Cavanaugh. He is the editor of thepolemicist.net. Welcome back, Jim. Thanks for having me. Good to have you back. Let's start with these Oath Keepers. Uh, the FBI agent who testified yesterday and then again today said that he had never heard of the Oath Keepers until January 6th. He said that he normally focuses on health care fraud, but that he had been on assignment at the Capitol on January 6th and that what he saw indicated that the Oath Keepers were acting out a coordinated plan to, to disrupt the counting of the electoral votes. First, tell us what seditious conspiracy is. This is what they've been charged with. And tell us why this coordinated act, if it's true, is so important. Well, yeah, the seditious conspiracy charge, and when you read the language of the U.S. Code, it's conspired to overthrow, put down, or destroy the government of the United States, or to oppose by force the authority thereof, or to prevent or hinder the del or delay the execution of any law of the government, or to force or seize or take property. So it covers a lot of things, wow. you know, yeah. from some from occupying buildings to, you know, laying down in front of police cars, which is, you know, preventing the hindering the, the execution of laws to trying to destroy the government of the United States. And it's a law which, you know, as I say, carries 20 years, up to 20 years in jail. And using right. this, uh, look here is the big picture, I think, you know. These guys in the Oath Keepers, I think they probably did have a plan. You know, I, I went through this in the in the 60s and 70s with groups who were planning to, you know, we're going to stop the government. We're going to stop them from sending weapons to Vietnam. Uh, you know, and the, the, if you look at the trial of the Chicago 7, you know, uh, people were out there uh, 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 arguing for militant action in the streets. So mm -hmm. there were people, who I think— uh, the Oath Keepers, I think, have a greatly inflated sense of their own effectivity, and they might think they could get together and overthrow the government, but there was no chance of that. In general, what you have here, I've done my best to avoid this January 6th stuff, but the more I look at it, however bad January 6th was, these people can be uh, can be prosecuted for the crimes they committed, you know, breaking into government property, destruction of government property, trespassing, etc. But to, let, to raise it up to this level of sedition and insurrection, et cetera, is, and domestic terrorism is a bad, very bad uh, precedent. And it's going to blow back all, all around, you know. In 2016, there were riots in the streets after Donald Trump was elected against uh, mm -hmm. He's not our president. He's illegitimate. And, you know, nobody was charged with seditious conspiracy. They were charged with, you know, breaking in and entering or 
You know, you can do that. But what they've done here, so it's one of these, it's one of the things like the, the, Donald Trump is a terrible president. The reaction to him has been worse. January 6th was a ridiculous thing. The reaction to it has been worse. And it's creating conditions that will, I think now, you know, that are now leading to a potential civil war because people are going to be thrown in jail for 20 years. Uh, they're going to be more militant. So you've, uh, you know, the movement it, uh, behind them is going to be more militant. So, uh, and, and really what I think January 6th, again, what's being hidden here is the real problem, which is going to continue, which is the electoral system stinks, you know, and and nobody has any trust in it and they shouldn't have any trust in it. And the Democrats said they, they were cheated in 2000, 2000 and 2004 and in 2016. And they went in in 2005 and tried to, you know, wouldn't vote for the for the electors and they wouldn't vote mm -hmm. in 2017 for the electors. They didn't go to the streets like this. But if the election is stolen, why don't you go to the streets? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you know, if you're really interested in democracy, the problem we have is an electoral system that nobody trusts and nobody's doing anything about that. Uh, and that all just keeps going on from the electoral college to the uh, suppression of votes and the purging of voter rolls to absolutely uh, un untrustworthy electronic voting machines with proprietary software. All of these things make for the fact that elections from now on are going to be, all of them are going to be contested. Well, let me ask you about, about one of the points that you made just now. These defendants are looking, as you said, at serious prison time. Just the charge of seditious conspiracy carries 20 years. And they've been charged with like four or five other felonies besides that. How is what these guys are alleged to have done any different from what anybody else who's already been sentenced to two to four years alleged to have done? Why are these Oath Keepers such an important bunch that that they uh, that they needed enhanced felony charges? Well, it's, again, it's like the Chicago 7. They're considered, I guess, the leaders uh, uh, of some movement, you know, and they, they want to and they were probably more disciplined and organized than other other people involved. So they want to go after those groups. Uh, but it's I don't really know the answer. That's the, that's the that's what my guess at the answer to that question would be. And again, we're going to see, you know, the people who support their movement and the Donald Trump movement and whatever are going to notice that these people are going to be are, are facing 20 years in jail for seditious conspiracy while while the country burned down over the George Floyd movements nobody was arguing for that yeah. you know what i mean yeah and they're going to notice this and you can't just pretend it's not something to that one 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 might notice and they're going to you know uh, this so this is what are you trying to do here? And you, you're setting up this category of domestic terrorism, which is really very dangerous. It is the war on terror coming home. January 6th is being used like the like 9-11 was being used. 9-11, right? Yeah, yeah. And it's being called a 9-11, you know, and it's being used to push the, 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 the police state and the national security state and to give them precedence for cracking down on organized militant dissent uh, in ways that are a notch above what they've what they've done before. Fourteen whistleblowers, Jim, 
from the FBI have gone to Representative Jim Jordan of Ohio and to Senators Chuck Grassley and Ron Johnson to complain that they have been taken off of active cases to work on January 6th issues and on parents who have complained at school board meetings about curricula and, and reading lists. These whistleblowers have said, that each of the cases they've been assigned has been counted inside the FBI as a separate, excuse me, a separate case of domestic terrorism. They believe that these cases are are political in nature. Do you think things are coming to a head at the FBI? Is the FBI as politicized as these agents say it is? Um, I, and I have to, I have to think. You know, Christopher Ray, the FBI's director, is a Donald Trump appointee. So uh, how did this happen in the first place? Well, yeah, I mean, the FBI is always politicized, first of all. There's nothing new about that. And and they are the political police that the guy got on television last year or six months ago and said, our job has been to stop the left, <laughs> you know? And uh, so uh, that's not a fact that they're politicized. But, you know, they are being used in a way that's kind of blatantly such right now. And they have been used against the Trumpers, I guess. And I don't know what... What, 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 you know, what Christopher Ray's, Ray, the fact that he was appointed by Trump doesn't necessarily mean anything. He's someone who's part of a, you know, permanent bureaucracy in the deep state. And at the end of the day, the, the FBI is going to do uh, uh, what they think uh, they're commanded to do, what they're, what, what they're told to do. And again, what they're doing is something which they want anyway, which is establishing this category of domestic terrorism, where political dissent and dissent against high school curriculum or grammar school curriculum can be used as can be characterized as uh, domestic domestic terrorism and uh, militant yeah. demonstrations can be characterized as domestic terrorism that's meat for the FBI and they like that so they're going to go along with that anyway and this is one of the things that you know uh, I'm glad some people on the so-called right are seeing the FBI as uh, a threat to their political freedoms now as people on the left have for 70 years so uh but it's it's not going to stop they will take this they will take the tools they are being given and they will use them across the board you know in 2020 i i briefly left sputnik to take a job uh with a uh company that was duly based in washington and athens uh dream job job of a lifetime right Tons of money and benefits, just great. I immediately saw that they were engaged in fraud, like <laughs> wide-scale fraud. And so I, uh, I resigned, and my attorney and I made an appointment at the FBI, and we went to the FBI with a thumb drive with thousands of pages of documents proving the fraud. Huh. And the FBI agent that we talked to listened politely for a few minutes, and then he said, guys, I'm going to be honest with you. If this doesn't have the word terrorism attached to it, we're not interested. And I said, listen, we're talking about major fraud, millions and millions of dollars. He said, sorry, we're not interested. And that was it. Because they're they're focused on what they're calling terrorism. And it's not, you know, Al-Qaeda cells or Hezbollah cells in American cities. It's January 6th, and it's people yelling about banning books at, at PTA meetings. It's, yeah, it's well, you know, exactly. You know, constituting that, trying to constitute it as terrorism, as a 9-11. Yeah. is just as right. important. And, you know, this is the kind of thing that will cause 
civil war in the United States. Uh, and uh, it's a great story about the FBI <laughs> ignoring that. And if it's true that they're taken away from healthcare for oil, although, right, you know, I, I, I suspect most of the healthcare fraud is just going after individual doctors and not the great healthcare fraud of the health insurance companies. But, you know, to focus on parents who are complaining at school board meetings, that's just, you know, it's crazy. But they have yeah. their themes that they set up. And, you know, terrorism, child pornography, drugs. These have been the great three, three, three themes over the past 30 years in succession. Yes. And, uh, you know, when they get that theme, then they try and shoot whatever, anything they can into it. And this is what we're seeing. And they, they see this as a, as, a, as a theme, as a, a trope, which can enable them to be more repressive over a larger sphere of American society. Amen to that. Hey, I had to chuckle when I saw this open letter uh, from January 6th defendants asking to be transferred to Guantanamo. Uh, they're, compl- <laughs> they're complaining about prison conditions and especially about the food uh, at prison. But the reason I chuckle is like, guys, that's what prison is. I can attest to that. Uh, the D.C. jail, of course, is a hellhole, but it's no worse than any other jail in America except maybe the Beverly Hills jail which I understand is actually quite nice. This open letter got them into the news for the for a day, but I can't imagine that anything will come of it. But with that said, as a country, we should be ashamed of our prisons and jails. Conditions are terrible. Conditions are terrible to the point of being illegal in some cases. Do you think that maybe there's a chance that this letter could spur Republicans in Congress to take a look at prison conditions across the country? Because so far, at least on Capitol Hill, Nobody's been terribly interested in American prisons and jails. Uh, short answer, no. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you are correct that the prison system is a disgrace, and, and they are finding this out. You know, here you've got some right-wing people who are finding out that, you know, and being held, I, I guess, awaiting trial. Guess what? Bail reform, guys, you know? Uh, and, uh, and they're finding out that people in prison are being treated like animals, and they've cre- created for themselves this fantasy, oh, they're pampering these Muslims and going to Guantanamo Bay. Right. <laughs> Let's go to... So they're, they're still not getting it, you know. Muslims in Guantanamo Bay aren't being treated any better than you. You just, you're still constructing the scenario where there's some kind of pampered treatment for prisoners somewhere. Uh, the people I don't like are being treated nicely in the prisons, you know, and uh, but you have this and it's nasty and it's terrible. And but again, it's just politically too easy to run as tough on crime. You know, I see it with uh, Oz and Fetterman in, in, in Philadelphia and in, in Pennsylvania. You know, Fetterman is a big reform advocate for for a. Uh, 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 parole reform, etc. Yep. He says, I can get, uh, you know, one third of the people get one third of the people out of prison and wouldn't nobody be left safe. That's true. So Oz is running this nasty, you know, Willie Horton campaign, all these vicious murderers are going to let out on the street, you know, and these are, and in New York, you have the, you know, and uh, the cities where progressive DA, real progressive DAs were elected on bail reform and they're blowbacked with this propaganda, you know, in the New York Times about all the terrible crimes that are being committed because, you know, so. This is just too easy politically to run as I'm the tough guy and I want to kill all the criminals. And the Republicans aren't going to go back on that, I think, on the, uh, uh, at the national level in any way, shape, or form. And every, every victory that's been won on that, as I say, has been pushed back quite quickly and, and fiercely. Yeah. 
One of the things that a lot of jails do here in the D.C. area, uh, this is the case in the Fairfax County Jail, which is, you know, Fairfax County is a gigantic uh, county and um, yeah. uh, very populous. It's it's jail is a is a big deal. But they they serve this thing three times a day that they call loaf. Right. That's just the name of it. Loaf. And what it is, is uh, vegetables, starch like potatoes or rice and meat. And it's all ground up into a paste and then formed into individual loaves and baked. And you get that three times a day. That's fine for a couple of days. You can force yourself through it. But jails hold people. Um, people who have already been sentenced for up to a year. And if you're pre-trial waiting, waiting to go on trial, you can be in a jail indefinitely. Well, what happens is you get so sick of this loaf, you just can't force it down your throat anymore. And so you don't eat it. And if you don't eat it, then they make less and then they save money by making less loaf than they otherwise would have. Um, so what do you do to eat is you spend your own money in the commissary. So, so the food cost is on you. It actually saves the taxpayers money, but it makes for a hellacious stay in a jail. If you have to eat this thing three times a day, um, it's actually quite common. Let me ask you about Donald Trump and this huge lawsuit against CNN. He's asking for $475 million for defamation. He's done this many times before, and the cases never go anywhere. Is that what we're looking at here? Are the courts just going to toss this, or do you think Trump has a, a point on defamation? After the Sarah Palin New York Times case, it seems that it's going to be exceedingly difficult for Trump to gain any traction. And if he keeps losing case after case, why does he keep filing them? He's a, he's a narcissist of the highest order, and he likes the I guess. You know, really, it's a ridiculous case. I don't think it's going to go anywhere. I don't think it should go anywhere. It contradicts everything. You know, if the New York Times or the CNN wants to characterize his political position as a big lie and make it more difficult for him politically. I mean, that's okay. That's what they, they can do that if they want, you know, I, uh, I you know, frankly, I, I, I don't necessarily, I don't agree with the way they, they pre determine and pre characterize in their discourse all the time. This is untrue. This is false. This is a big lie, but you know, they can do that if they want. Now this is not going to go anywhere. And it is uh, running against uh, the, the, trend that the Republicans have been using, that we're in favor of free speech, we don't want to cancel anybody, people should be able to say what they want. So, you know, just in the most basic sense, you know, newspapers and media can characterize politicians as liars anytime they want. And uh, the idea that he would want to, or think, what does lawyers think? He's spending, he's wasting money on this, as you say, what is the reason other than his, you know, primary narcissism? I don't know. I mean, it's Donald Trump has always had a, an interesting relationship with the media because, of course, uh, the initial reflection after he won or, you know, as he, after he became the Republican nominee in 2016 was that, you know, it, he was a media creation, right? That by focusing all of their attention on Donald Trump, they, uh, you know, CNN, MSNBC, the rest of them uh, pumped him up as a candidate in a way that he wouldn't necessarily have been. And so now to sort of it's it's. Uh, it's interesting to me that he's sort of turning around and saying, no, actually, then then that continued and it wasn't fair. But I don't know also that um, 
I don't know that this is so totally against the trend. I mean, he is a, a public figure and a political figure, but there have been some pretty high profile, high dollar defamation cases against these organizations that have succeeded, like the Covington kids, um, right. for example. Yeah. And so I think um, I think the trend is a little bit more complicated, right, where there is, you know, in addition to this, we support free speech. We don't want to cancel anyone. There is a sort of hostility to media organizations that are perceived as being hostile to right wing interests, you know. And so there was some celebration, I think, in the the Covington kids uh, winning that settlement with CNN. Did am I crazy? Did Kyle, the the um, Minneapolis shooter, what's his name again? Rittenhouse. Kyle Rittenhouse. Yeah, Rittenhouse. Did he have some media lawsuit as well? I, I believe know. he did. I, I believe he did, although I don't know what the outcome was. Yeah, maybe it sort of went nowhere. Maybe he just talked about that. So I think, you know, the the I think the the entire relation, like the behavior of the U.S. Uh, media in general has just gotten very uh, muddy. And like, no, I don't also, I think that this is probably going nowhere. I don't think that uh, it should be easy for, you know, public figures to, uh, you know, for Donald Trump to make these accusations, I think uh, you don't want to see that kind of chilling effect on journalism. But I do think also a lot of these media outfits have uh, they really shot themselves in the foot. They've made they've made things more complicated than they would need to be uh, if they were a little bit more, uh, I guess, even handed and interested in in sticking to what is known rather than what is conjecture, conjecture, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I do think they should do it. I think they do play fast and loose. And the Covington kid, that kid was a high school student who was not as he was portrayed in the yeah. media. He was, a, he was a high school student. He had a case there. Yeah. He's not the, the president of the United States. He was yeah. a public figure, political figure. And he was vilified badly and needlessly. So, you know, I'm all for people like that bringing, bringing cases against the media and saying, you know, if you, if you say something about me that's, that's false and, 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 Create a a, a a whole narrative about me, a whole campaign about me that that costs me deeply in my life. You know, I'm going to make you pay for it because you got the money. Uh, and now, but Donald Trump's a different story. I mean, he's the president of the United States. He's a public figure. If someone had said about Donald Trump, you know, uh, 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 he was running guns for Putin into, you know, January sixth. Then he should too, <laughs> you know. If they had said something that was blatantly false and was ridiculous, they should sue. Mm-hmm. You know, if someone came out and said he's a spy for for Vladimir Putin, yeah, I wouldn't blame him for suing on that. You know what I mean? Yeah. But if someone says you're a liar. What you're saying is a big lie. You know, that's just yes. standard procedure. <laughs> And and as this public figure, you know, there is a higher bar, of course, for any kind of defamation. But, you know, saying they can say, oh, he looks like he's collaborating with Donald with uh, Vladimir Putin. But mm. you can't say he's a spy for Donald for yeah. uh, Vladimir Putin. And I know it. And he's on a payroll. Yeah. I was like, Kyle Rittenhouse said he was going to sue and nothing appears to have come of it. In case we uh, all w- wanted to be clear I, on that. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. I wanted to ask you, uh, Jim about uh, about the threat of nuclear war in Ukraine. President Putin said last week that Russia would consider the use of tactical nuclear weapons on a battlefield. That's a frightening prospect. First, do you see this as anything more than um, than a threat or military posturing? Do you believe there's a real possibility of nuclear war in Ukraine? I believe there's a real possibility of nuclear war coming out of Ukraine. 
Vladimir Putin hasn't threatened to use nuclear weapons in Ukraine. In order, the, the Americans are creating this scenario that he's losing, so therefore he's going to use a nuclear weapon to to stop the the advance of the Ukrainian troops. That is not what's happening. It's not what's going to happen. Vladimir Putin restated all the old the Russian policy that's been the nuclear policy for 20 years, 30 years. We'll use nuclear weapons if they, nuclear or other mass destruction weapons are used against us, or if our existence as a threat, as a, as a, as a state is threatened in some existential way. That's not going to happen for them in Ukraine. And, right. you know, it's more like, you know, this is just nonsense that the Russians are losing in Ukraine. They're on the run. They're, you know, there's things coming in Ukraine. The problem with Ukraine is that there's going to be a huge Russian offensive <laughs> in a month or so. And the problem with Ukraine is uh, somebody's going to win or lose. Someone is going to have to accept defeat here. It's more likely going to have to be the Ukrainians and NATO, or they will have to try and just stop it by using a tactical nuclear weapon. But it's in a situation in which you have the you have a real the the the, the real situation is that it's a Russian war against NATO, and the Russians are going to fight that, and they're going to fight it now with a huge conventional force that they're going to bring in because they couldn't get away with a limited war that they thought they could. And the, and the Ukrainians have now got themselves in a position, and NATO have got themselves in a position where they're the, the Russians have constituted these four new oblasts as Russian territory. It's for eight yep. years, the Ukrainians could have settled for limited autonomy for the uh, Lugansk and Donetsk. And at the beginning of this operation, they could have settled for uh, the, the, the loss of, of, of Lugansk and Donetsk and Crimea. Now yep. they're not going to get this is going to go on until somebody surrenders. And it's going to be a very, and in, the, in that context, we're in the most dangerous place for the closest to nuclear war than I've ever seen. If the Russians were to use nukes, and, and this is a question I'm getting from the, uh, uh, I'm taking from the Washington Post. Uh, they had a piece about this today. What do you think the Western response would be? And the reason I'm asking is because the Post concluded that that we just don't know what the Western response would be. There are a hundred different scenarios that the Pentagon is working through, um, but they've never actually stated a policy. What are your thoughts? Well, yeah, the United States does not have a no first use policy on nuclear weapons. The Vladimir Putin, Putin policy that he ex articulated is really, if, in fact, no different from any other policy that any other country with nuclear weapons has. We're going to use them if we need them, <laughs> but yeah. only, in the, only in the worst circumstance, only in the direst of, uh, of circumstances we're threatened. If anybody uses nuclear weapons, nobody knows what the next step would be. That's my point, and it's going to be probably a major nuclear war. That's going to, you know, if it's not all of the nuclear weapons on all of the cities, it's going to be multiple strikes, certainly around Europe. And, and the, the, you know, again, the real question is, what is the West going to do if Don, yeah. if, if Russian troops are taking over Kiev? Okay, what are they going to do then? Are they going to sit back and say, oh, okay, we lost. Or are they going to say, we're going to stop? I guarantee you that if Zelensky had nuclear weapons, he'd use them in the Donbass. He yeah. doesn't care about them. Yeah, without they a doubt. Troops. And they would like to get them. And that's a possibility. So this is, we should realize that we're in this, the people who are fighting this and who are supporting one side or another are, support, you know, are, are, are what they supporting? Everybody who looks at this has to realize this is going down to one side or another has to accept what will be clearly a defeat. And 
Will Russia accept that without using nuclear weapons? Will the West and Kiev accept that without using nuclear weapons? That's what's so dangerous about this. The minute nuclear weapons are used, it's going to open up. It may not become the hugest world war, but it's going to become uh, devastating, especially to Europe. Yeah, I would agree with that. I would agree with everything you said. Jim Cavanaugh, thanks for joining us. Jim is the editor of thepolemicist.net. Check out his work there. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're going to take a short break and come back. Stay tuned. I'm here with my co-host, John Kiriakou. I am indulging myself in this segment because we're talking some more about celebrity crypto schemes and the SEC that appears to be coming after them. We are going to talk a little bit more about the UN pleading for countries to stop raising their interest rates. And I want to talk about the credit score system that we all, for some reason, have agreed to live under in the United States, even though it is just on its face, uh, cruel and exploitative. Joining us for all of these conversations is Robert Hockett. He's Edward Cornell Professor of Law and a professor of public policy at Cornell University. He's the senior counsel at Westwood Capital, and he's a fellow of the Century Foundation. Thanks for joining us, Robert. Hey, Michelle and John. Great to be with you guys again. I love this crypto pump and dump story. Uh, so Kim Kardashian was in the news yesterday for settling with the SEC for more than a million dollars for promoting a crypto token on her Instagram account without disclosing that she was paid $250,000 to make that statement. And I want to talk about this story just because I think we should see moves like this for what they are, which is a very rich woman trying to make herself or at a minimum her very rich associates even wealthier by getting the regular people who follow her on Instagram to buy a worthless token, send its value skyward and give her and her pals a really high price to sell at uh, while leaving these regular people with nothing for their investment. And I will say this token that she was um, touting, I think this was about a year ago, has indeed lost almost all of its value. And I, I think for some reason, I feel like it is important to see this as the revolting exercise it is because it shows us something about the larger economy. And so I, I want to start with, is, am I misunderstanding this or is that what happened here? No, I think you've got it exactly right, Michelle. I mean, um, you know, the, 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 these kinds of schemes that we're seeing in the crypto space are sort of remarkable in their crudity, right? I mean, they're very old styles of scam that have, you know, tended to be replicated again and again every time some new supposed asset class uh, comes to the fore, right? So pump and dump type schemes were common in the case of uh, the stock market and various stocks before the stock markets came to be more carefully regulated in the 1930s. Um, the same sorts of schemes uh, were quite common in other so-called markets, no doubt even in the tulip markets uh, of the Netherlands back in the 17th century. So, you know, this is uh, certainly an area where you could sort of say, uh, you know, plus a change, right? right? Mm -hmm. Basically, the more it changes, the more it stays the same. Um, one sort of intriguing wrinkle here, and this 
this particular case is the fact that certain celebrities seem to be getting in on the act. Um, as you guys know, of course, so have others, right? Not just, um, this is just the latest celebrity uh, to get involved. And, and you, you've even got occasionally political figures who seem to be trying to kind of distinguish themselves from the pack by, you know, casting themselves as kind of futuristically minded, the next money sort of oriented mm-hmm. type uh, folk, right? Like Eric Adams, uh, the mayor of New York. So that is a somewhat uh, new wrinkle, I guess you could say. Although, you know, it's also the case that um, uh, mutual funds, um, say 20, 30 years ago, would oftentimes add somebody like Gerald Ford or John Glenn to their boards of directors in order to kind of capitalize on their celebrity, even though John Glenn, as far as we knew, knew nothing about financial markets. It's whatever you might have known about the moon uh, or about orbiting the Earth. So, um, you know, even the use of celebrities uh, in pump and dump schemes is not altogether new, but there does seem to be a little bit of an uptake in that kind of thing, I guess you could say right now. I mean, speaking of politicians, I think Madison Cawthorn is being investigated for some like NFT thing that was not legal. Probably he had no idea what the law was and just started pumping some worthless NFT because he didn't think he was doing anything. I mean, I'm not I don't need to get inside his head, but um, I I have a question about whether there is a social media is adding a wrinkle here because we we saw Matt Damon. We saw Larry David in commercials during the Super Bowl uh, touting Mm -hmm. cryptocurrencies or NFTs. Reese Witherspoon has been talking about this stuff. So, like, I guess if you watch a commercial on TV, you assume celebrities have been paid for it. But social media. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if there is a legal difference in saying something on on social media than uh, through another vehicle. I mean, in theory, there could have been a difference in the sense that, you know, your filings with the SEC are typically done, you know, they're basically filled out by accountants and lawyers, and then they tend to be signed and uh, warranted uh, by the lawyers and accountants who sign them. And that might seem to be a somewhat more sort of serious commitment to the truth of one, what is what one is saying, uh, than would a remark on social media. But as it happens, the way the SEC polices the financial markets ever since the 1930s, is just to assume that basically any sort of communication that can reach lots and lots of non-expert people who might then be swayed to enter into these markets and be fleeced by them or harmed by them is potentially liable, right? And basically, the, the, the simplest way to sort of understand what the securities laws require is as essentially importing into arm's length transactions the kinds of fiduciary responsibilities that we used to think um, of as only applying to lawyers and accountants in their communications to their clients. In other words, fraud by omission is every bit as possible to find uh, as is fraud by commission. There is no caveat emptor, buyer beware sort of norm in these realms um, since the passage of the securities laws back in the 1930s. Mm-hmm. And what do you make of the hot take that this actually is going to be good for crypto markets because it will demonstrate that the industry is actually being regulated and being watched uh, so you can trust it now. I think there's an element of truth to that, but it's a bit overstated and hence, ironically, might be a bit of a hype job in its own right. Uh, 
<laughs> because we really won't have that kind of legal certainty until specific rules are promulgated and they go through the notice and comment period that all new rulemakings go through or until some court definitively rules uh, that the securities laws um, uh, apply across the board uh, to this industry. As things are now, it's not quite the same sort of wild west that it was before Gary Gensler took the helm at the SEC, but it's still not a, a sort of a full law and order sort of um, arrangement, you might say, uh, as of yet, because there's still more rulemaking to be done, maybe even more legislating to be done to kind of clarify all of this. The great news for the moment is that Gary Gensler is, in effect, kind of um, erring on the side of caution, so that if there's any doubt as to whether a particular token or other alleged asset uh, is a security uh, or not within the meaning of the securities laws? Uh, Gary is assuming um, that that they that there is no such doubt that they mm -hmm. they do indeed fall under that. But it, but again, it's kind of like a new sheriff coming into town without a whole bunch of laws kind of firmly on the books, fully laying out all the details of what that sheriff's authority are yet. So we still have a little ways to go, I think, before we can really feel confident. Yeah, I mean, it is interesting that in it seems like in the case of Gary Gensler, sort of enforcement is leading the law. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like he's just saying, yeah. well, you guys haven't you guys haven't managed to put together, you know, specific law on this matter. But people, you know, people are losing their shirts uh, in this and yeah. being and being defrauded. And somebody has to somebody has to, you know, figure out what these things are and how we're supposed to regulate them. Exactly. And I think, you know, the, the, the definition of a security within the meaning of the securities laws is, I think, sufficiently capacious as to make it pretty clear, or at least it ought to make it pretty clear to most people, mm -hmm. that these things qualify as securities. I think one reason, however, that there is a kind of a continuing degree of doubt is because of the old traditional turf war between the so-called you know, Commodity Futures Trading Commission, or CFTC, that regulates commodities on the one hand, including commodity derivatives, and then the SEC on the other that regulates securities on the other. Mm. Because we've, we've reached a point now where the definitions or the, the sort of practical understandings of what constitute commodities or commodity derivatives on the one hand and what constitutes securities on the other largely converge. And yet we have these two distinct regulators that claim jurisdiction. So I think there's still a residual hope on the part of various fraudsters that maybe they can exploit a kind of turf war uh, between the, S, uh, the CFTC and the SEC. And insofar as there's any remaining ambiguity, I think that's probably the main source of it. Um, so it would be great if we can get some legislation soon um, uh, or some court decisions or both soon that sort of weigh in definitively on this. But again, I think at, at, at this point, it's clear enough that Gary Gensler is certainly not going out on the limb when he says we're going to count these as securities. And that should uh, yeah. inspire a fair bit more caution, you know, in the markets yeah. on the part of would-be fraudsters. Yeah. I also, I, I think I have asked you about this before, but I want to talk again about the, the jump in consumer debt among uh -huh. the bottom 90% of earners in the United States. Uh, about a week ago, it was reported that uh, consumer debt, including credit card debt, was at an all-time high for the 118 million U.S. households that make up the bottom 90 percent of earners. Uh, I think this period covers it covers summer 2021 to summer 2022. Uh, debt grew by three hundred billion dollars. This is being blamed largely on inflation. Um, and I was thinking about this because I, I happened to be talking to a friend the other night who mentioned the possibility of taking out a bank loan uh, to, you know, among other things, pay off some high APR credit card debt. And it just made me think about the cascade 
cascading effects we could see, uh, you know, as a result of inflation and the resulting debts. If you have, you know, 100 million households paying 17 percent interest on on increasing debt burdens with no end in sight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's kind of amazing. I mean, it, and there's a sort of a, a fitting irony here too, right? And so, in one sense, this is essentially the 1990s redux. And the sense in which it's a kind of fitting irony is that, well, Bill Clinton's principal economic advisor, Larry Summers, is once again um, wielding influence of a kind that I find mystifying, especially now that we've been through the 90s and see what that sort of ends in. But in in essence, the story of the 90s is. The story of our gradual sort of moving to dependence on consumer debt and housing debt as a substitute for declining incomes, mm-hmm. real incomes, that is, or stagnating real incomes, in order to enable the middle class and, the, and and those who are very not as well as the middle class to sort of maintain the lifestyles to which they have become accustomed, notwithstanding that yeah. stagnating and and that works for a while, right? If you if you come up with new kinds of debt products and you make it easier for people to borrow in order to buy potato chips, then sure, you know you'll get a bit more purchases of potato chips for a while. But at some point, right, that just becomes an unsustainable debt burden for the private sector, and you get a crash or an implosion of the kind that we saw in two thousand eight. We see the same thing happening now. And again, the fitting irony here is that it seems to be happening partly thanks to all of these austerian calls and, and dark warnings by people like Larry Summers and Larry Summers Jr., that is Jason Furman, to the effect that we've got to squelch this inflation by raising the unemployment rate and by putting more downward pressure on wages, that is to say, incomes outside of the, the top 1%. Mm-hmm. And so what do you know? We're seeing a growth in consumer debt again yeah. um, in, in response or in consequence or in tandem uh, with that. So my own view um, is that this is going to be a repeated cycle uh, of, of boom and bust uh, and, and cataclysm following the bust until such time as we actually get serious about raising real wages and salaries in a sustained way and keeping them going. And we've seen, as you know, as you guys and I have talked about before, I mean, one of the, one of the sort of silver linings post-COVID is that there has been a tightening of labor markets and hence uh, an increase in bargaining power on the part of workers and hence growing union strength and mm-hmm. some rises in wages and, and salaries and the like. But that's all of those rises are actually trailing inflation rates, rates, which tells me that they're not driving the inflation. The inflation is being driven on the profit side and on the supply side. Um, So, you know, I'm, I'm of course, horrified at this point that we're, we seem to be poised to replay the 1990s again, complete with Larry Summers, in a sense, at the helm. Yeah, I mean, the labor market is in the crosshairs of the Federal Reserve, and we have a jobs report um, coming out just this morning that shows that a job, new job openings in August dropped by 10% from July. Uh, I, yeah. I see still like new unemployment claims are, are low and uh, hirings and firings have held pretty steady. But I mean, I think we can already see that they, they, it is having an impact on the labor market. Um, it is. Yeah. They're, they're all saying they want that to continue. Right. Yeah. Even John Williams at the New York Fed, who used to be pretty dovish, is repeating the, the Powell line, who's basically repeating the Summers line. It's it's quite troubling. 
And I, I want to ask in a minute about the statements coming out of the UN on this, but uh, I did want to ask you also about this issue of uh, credit scores in the United mm-hmm. States because, you know, there was a, t- another conversation about, you know, applying for a loan and then you get er- interrupted in this electronic process because, you know, server dips out or something like that. And mm-hmm. you get sort of pre-approved. Your screen goes blank. You try to apply again. And then, oh, no, you've applied too many times. Your credit score has gone down. And so you can't just like it's such a bizarre it's such a bizarre framework to live within, I feel like. And yet we just we we just sort of don't really think about it and we consider it normal. And I just wanted to get your thoughts on just the just the reality of credit scores and what uh, what affects them. Yeah, so a couple of things. So, I mean, for, first of all, um, because these scores are now derived algorithmically, there are all kinds of weird little glitches that can affect them uh, negatively in exactly the way that you just described. And that can operate as an injustice uh, in, a, in, a, in a significant sense of that word right here. Um, it also, of course, there's a little bit of irony there because, as you know, some Western libertarian types will criticize, say, the government of China yeah. for assigning social credit scores to the citizenry and then they get demerits if they um, engage in various forms of uh, misdeed or whatever. And then that limits their capacity to travel and so forth. The irony, of course, is that we effectively kind of do the same thing. It's just that we don't call it a prohibition on traveling. We just make it unaffordable to do stuff that you might otherwise have been able to do. The other thing maybe worth saying here is that there's a kind of a a really strange sort of bipolar disorder in this too, right? Because um, as we were talking about before, in in an era of declining or stagnating real incomes, um, there's a tendency for us to rely more on consumer credit and mortgage credit in order to kind of keep growth going. And that means we sort of, in effect, kind of oscillate between opening the spigots too widely to the point where you actually got lenders hounding would-be borrowers demanding that they borrow more and sending them all sorts of adverts and free um you know free sort of promotions to sort of open new credit accounts Mm. on the one hand and then you know within a year um they'll be assigning these nasty credit scores and using it as a pretext to jack up interest rates or to limit uh capacities on the part of ordinary folk to refinance debts at lower rates when rates actually go down so there's a kind of there's a sense in which I, I feel a bit as though those who are not in the one percent are kind of screwed from both ends, as it were. Yeah, I mean, you can't it, you know, it prevents people from getting cars. It prevents people from buying. Cars. Yeah, it's, it, it does yeah. seem to be purely a mechanism. I mean, I guess I understand wanting to have some idea of whether, you know, you should rent your apartment to some person who is a total stranger to you. But really, it seems like it's it's major effect is to keep people in precarious situations as long as possible. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, I think that the banking industry or the, the lending industry more broadly, I mean, the sweet spot for them is to have everybody basically in debt forever and paying the interest rates, right? Which are just rents, right? It's, a, it's just a pure rent. It's it's as if you had to pay somebody to rent the air to breathe and you had to pay somebody to rent the water to drink. And this is in effect what these um, entities live for. They don't live to sort of lend to you, to enable you to um, kind of better your station in life and then pay off your debts and coast. They basically want you, in effect, to be paying interest forever, every month, right? Because that's just pure income for them. They're not producing anything. They're simply deriving pure rents uh, off of people in the same way that a landlord might in a place with a large population and very little land. Mm -hmm. Mm. All right, let's talk about interest rates in the U.N., 
Uh, the UN mm-hmm. Conference on Trade and Development yesterday said the world is on a brink on the brink of a policy induced global recession. Uh, and yeah. I have a little joke here about don't threaten Jerome Powell with a good time. But uh, <laughs> she said the world needs to change course. It's poor countries that are going to suffer the most in this global downturn that we are engineering. She recommended mm-hmm. a policy mix that deploys strategic price controls, windfall taxes, antitrust measures, and tighter regulations on commodity speculation. She uh, also said, yeah, she reiterated needing to end commodity price speculation. This is being interpreted as a plea to stop raising interest rates and for the love of God, try something else. Uh, mm-hmm. Is it common for the UN to to plead with rich countries to change their monetary policies? I, I genuinely don't know if this is something that comes out of this office all the time or not. Uh, it, it, uh, in, in one sense, it happens regularly. It has been happening regularly for a, a, good, a good many decades, going back at least to the Reagan years. On the other hand, in another sense, this is sort of unprecedented in the sense that the call is much more overt. It's much more um, urgent sounding, uh, as it should be. Uh, and it's much more warranted even than ever, because while it is the case that central banks worldwide tend to kind of follow one another and tend to operate more or less in lockstep. There seem to be more central banks worldwide right now marching in much closer lockstep than ever before Mm -hmm. to the point where, in effect, Jay Powell is setting world monetary policy. And in effect, he's setting world monetary policy to be highly austerian. And there is, we do appear to be poised then to enter into a a truly potentially cataclysmic global recession as a result of this. Now, it seems to me there are two ways to respond to it, um, which are not mutually exclusive. You can do either or both of these things, right? One is to say, all right, all of you central banks who are all kind of quasi-independent, go ahead and get your jollies by raising interest rates and making money tighter or whatever. Meanwhile, all of us countries in which you operate are going to embark upon massively expansionary fiscal policies to induce more investment in clean production and green production Mm -hmm. worldwide. And that would be, that would have a countervailing effect, right? We would raise employment rates, we would raise wages and salaries, and we would also raise the quantity of green goods and green technologies that would enable us all the more quickly to begin to decarbonize uh, the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. That's one thing to do. Another thing to do is to say, central banks, you've got too much independence. We're not going to let you do this uh, to our populations and sort of crack down on the central banks themselves, or you could do a bit of both. My guess is that the first option is the most likely, uh, that's the one we're most likely to see. And to some extent, some of what you see happening under the so-called Inflation Reduction Act and the CHIPS Act and some of the other infrastructure and manufacturing bills that have come out of Congress lately, those seem to be setting a trend in their own right. First of all, you do see a lot more investment now beginning in industries here in the U.S., which ultimately is going to be productive. Secondly, a lot of other countries now are beginning to follow suit, kind of following the lead, however humble it was, mm-hmm. um, that was set right by these new enactments out of Congress over the last year. Can I ask a very basic question? But what is the virtue of having a quasi-independent central bank? Like, why, why separate monetary and fiscal policy like that? Yeah, the theory um, behind this in the past, at least, was that there's a kind of a built-in inflationary bias when it comes to the financial markets and the banking industry in particular. Mm-hmm. There's, a, that there's a, essentially an endemic tendency uh, for banks to overextend credit and thus over, you know, kind of basically overinflate the money supply. 
Uh, and similarly with politicians, the thought was that if politicians have too much control over central banks, they're going to tend to turn open the spigots so that people will feel the good times of a boom during electoral cycles, so that people get reelected. Um, and you know, so Jimmy okay. Carter sort of notoriously loathed Paul Volcker because Paul Volcker's austerian monetary policies prevented Carter's reelection. He thought, right? So that was the theory. But here's the irony in that: uh, starting around 2010, 2011. Any idea that any any claim that there's a sort of an inflationary bias in public policy seems to have become completely implausible, and indeed 180 degrees opposite the truth. Right? What's been the big call from political types over the last 20 years? It's all been in the name of austerity. It's like we're living beyond our means. We're gonna mm. tighten our belt. We got loose money going on. Blah blah blah. So, if anything, it seems to me that if you need independent central banks, you need them actually to work against the austerity of politicians, which is kind of what Ben Bernanke did against people like John Boehner and Paul Ryan and those others about ten years ago. But now, and, and for a while, Powell seemed to be in the same mold as Bernanke and Yellen. Um, he indeed was actually a protege of Yellen's and mm-hmm. kind of studied, um, you know, at her footsteps, so to speak. But now suddenly he's had some weird bedside conversion. I guess he's just been listening too much to Larry Summers, yeah. uh, who, by the way, has an axe to grind because uh, Congress chose, or the president and Congress together chose Yellen over him to be uh, Fed chair um, back <laughs> about seven or eight years ago. Um, but anyway, Powell is now sort of acting on the instructions of Larry Summers, it seems, which is crazy. Um, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that makes one wonder again about independence, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, we could, there is a lot that I could uh, ask about here, but we're almost out of time, so we got to let you go. That was Robert Hockett. He's a professor of law and a professor of public policy at Cornell University. Always great to talk to you, Robert. Thanks for joining us. So great, Michelle. Thanks so much. Uh, John, we have a couple minutes left, and I had some stories that I was planning to talk about, but I'm sorry, I have been derailed by this tweet So I don't know if you have seen over the past uh, couple of days, Elon Musk has been posting on Twitter these like polls about what should happen in Ukraine. And then people people getting mad at him and whatever. I don't care what Elon Musk does. I do care a little, I think, um, that an NPR correspondent in Moscow has tweeted that uh, from what he's hearing, Elon Musk is not simply expressing his own view, but transmitting a concrete proposal wrapped in a threat from Putin himself, which is not a joke. He is saying uh, that he he is saying that uh, his justifications here are that Russians are obsessed with Elon Musk and that Musk famously invited Vladimir Putin to chat on Clubhouse when that was a thing. So this is his justif. I mean, I guess he says he is hearing it to me. This sounds absolutely bonkers that Vladimir Putin is texting Elon Musk to say, uh, hey, why don't you put my uh, proposals for negotiating an end to this conflict? Uh, why don't you put it to your Twitter followers, Elon, and see if we can get a peace deal that way? Uh, right. You know, that's how it's done. That's how peace deals are negotiated. I mean, I will admit I have a direct line to neither Elon Musk nor Vladimir Putin. I just as a as a person with a brain seems seems crazy to me uh oh i what guess do you he, make of this this breaking news a moscow correspondent and now he's a ukraine correspondent same thing oh yeah what do you make of this breaking news from the last hour that 
that Elon Musk has decided that he will, after all, buy Twitter at the original price yeah. that, that he had agreed to. After all of this fighting and and court battles and yeah. threats back and forth. And now he sa- he says, okay, yeah, I'll take it after all. I what mean, do you make of that? At first glance, I think it, I mean, uh, f- from what I recall, and I could be wrong because this is what I, this is a, a an area where I am absorbing analysis from other people. I don't know how <laughs> large mergers occur, but I mean, from what I understand, like, he was always going to have to buy it. He had or take a huge uh, financial hit cuz yeah. you know he the pro, you know he had gotten that far in the process. So I guess yeah, he right. ju- I mean my initial guess is uh he just couldn't get out of it and never was going to get out of it and uh you know that's what happened. He just wanted there to be a lot of yelling in the process. I, that's all I can imagine. Yeah, I think that the that the the fine was a billion dollars. That if he were to back out of the deal, um, he would have to pay Twitter a billion dollars. And the deal was for forty four million, right? Forty four billion, yeah. For Twitter, right. yeah, yeah. So I mean, that's what I'm guessing. Maybe we'll hear something else tomorrow. Uh, something we're also going to hear a little bit later. Joe Biden is supposed to lay out some new uh, reproductive rights guidelines today. I don't really know what that means or what form new guidelines to protect reproductive rights. Um, I'm not sure what form these guidelines will take. I have a feeling uh, we'll have a little bit to chew on tomorrow and uh, RIP Loretta Lynn. Yeah. 90 years old. Yeah. Good luck. Yeah. To tell you the truth, I didn't realize she was still alive. I'm a little bit embarrassed to say that. And I mean, is it even worth mentioning that uh, we're sending another six hundred twenty-five million to Ukraine? I just got that announcement uh, direct from direct from Anthony Blinken. Thanks for letting me know, Tony. Appreciate it. We'll yeah. probably get into that a little bit more tomorrow too. But that's all we've got time for for today. Thanks, as always, to all of our guests. Thanks to the engineers and producers who make this show possible. And on behalf of John Kiriakou and myself, Michelle Witte, thanks to all of you for listening. We will see you tomorrow. 